are missionaries from this church uh, to Jamaica, and it is a joy to, to see you. I, I mentioned earlier and still excited, when we were in Jamaica last year, after you guys were allowed to return to church in Jamaica, we still were restricted from gathering on Sundays. Either you weren't allowed to leave your house on a Sunday or the church only was allowed to have 10 people. Uh, we often uh, would watch um, church and participate in our living room, and after we would finish or before our Jamaican church would come on, we would tune in often to Maranatha. Uh, to, and, and I remember, you know, we would have the viewpoint of the camera at the back of the church, and the singing would happen, and all of you would stand up, and I'd, we'd see the back of everybody's head. And then the feed was done, and that was it. I never got to take the camera and say, can you just turn that around and let me see the faces of everybody. And so this morning as we're finishing up this song about what Christ has done, I'm sitting there, I realize I get to get up and I get to turn around and see you all. And it's so wonderful to see faces, right? Whether you're separated or whether, um, you know, we were talking out there and you know, someone's like, do you recognize me? It's like, well, with the mask, it's hard, right? And while it's necessary, it's wonderful to see faces. And it's humbling to be here and to be able to open the word with you today. And, and it's a joy. Um, I was overwhelmed with emotion sitting right there because uh, the last time I got to be up here was three and a half years ago. And that weekend, while it had moments of wonder, uh, that weekend was also marked by great heartache. As Friday before my ordination examination, I dropped off our little baby boy at the doctor after a miscarriage. And it was hard to stand up here that, that Sunday and to open the word of God. But today I get to be here and we have another son in the nursery. God is amazing. And so my heart is just open and joyous to be here with, with family. And, and, and that really frames what I want to talk about today because reuniting and being together is a wonderful thing. And the last year and a half has reiterated the, the joy it is to be with people that you love and that love you. And many of us maybe will enjoy that this week, uh, or maybe you won't. I don't know the people you are gathering with. But it's good to, to join and to be together and have relationship and to see people you know and care about. But separation and distance is a consequence and often a part of our lives and relationships. If, if, you, were to, if you were to try to sometime visit uh, Charity and I in Jamaica, you know, you would, you'd go to the airport and you would wait and you'd check in and then you'd walk through the gate and maybe you land in like Atlanta or something and there's just a lot of people in those airports. But everybody at an airport and in the airplane is purposely, actively avoiding talking to anybody else. We have our noise-canceling headphones and you're watching your shows that you downloaded and we avoid the interaction. But then you land and you go through another line. You're surrounded by people that you have no intention of hanging out with because there's somebody else you're going to see. And if I were to take you out in the roads of Jamaica and, and, and drive you around and, and you'd see things and they'd look different to you and, and it would be strange. 
but you'd be excited because you'd be in the car with somebody you know and, and you enjoy. So even if it's a different place, there's separation, there's distance. Relationship is what makes it worth it and okay. But in Jamaica and both here, while Charity and I have, have been back and started to engage with churches and different cultures, we've realized that culture itself and the church and society's view of the church, both here and in Jamaica, has grown more and more separate over the past couple years. And that separation is marked and summarized. I have a quote here for you today by an atheist named Richard Dawkins. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. And in there he expresses, in many words, the feeling of that that problem he has with Christianity. He says the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous, proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I practiced it, don't worry. All those words, you don't need to know what they mean to know that the world and and much of the worldview, both here and in Jamaica, is growing more and more cognizant that there's a disconnect for many believers between this wonderful, loving Jesus who sat down with people that were different from him, and then they flip back and and they look through the pages of Judges and Deuteronomy, and they see a God who does not fit that loving mentality And so they draw a line, and if you as a Christian say, no, I accept the whole Bible, and it's a wonderful story of God, they're like, how? And I've met many believers, and even in my own past, um, before before growing, it was sometimes hard to admit, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I worship, that's the God I serve. It's almost embarrassing sometimes. But for us... If we claim this word of God is told, and it it all-consuming is telling the story of a God who is wonderful and loving, do we ever stop and make sure that's true and attest it and to prove it and remind ourselves that God at all times has desired relationship with people? And today I want to walk us through a passage of Scripture to examine that, that idea. And so if you have your Bibles or your phones, go to Leviticus chapter 1, and as you do, I'm going to open us in prayer and focus our hearts on God's word today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word to open our hearts and our minds so that we may learn and see you and be changed. May you help my words. Uh, May I humbly present your word, and may your spirit work in our hearts that we are challenged and reminded of your love and what that demands and asks of us to go into the world. May you be glorified today in our presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So to set the stage for you here in the book of Leviticus, I want you to to stop and consider what, why the book of Leviticus, where it's taking place. And so uh, Genesis, God made people in his image and he desired relationship. But then there was sin that severed and broke that relationship. And then as you move forward, God eventually calls a people, and they develop into a nation called the Israelites. 
and they go into oppression in Egypt, and the book of Exodus walks us through how God takes them and delivers them from the land of Egypt, and he leads them into the wilderness where they are dependent upon him, and he shares with them rules and commandments to live by. But there's more he wants than just the rules for them to follow. God desires to have relationship with people. So he instructs Moses to build a tent called the tabernacle where God himself can come and dwell among people and have relationship with them. But there's a problem. And at the very end of the book of Leviticus, or Exodus, so if you're in Leviticus, you're there already, Moses sets up the tabernacle And we see in Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35, that the cloud covered the tent and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. He is separated and outside the tent. So as you turn now to Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, there's a little preposition that gets in the way. It says, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Meaning, God is inside the tent Moses and the rest of his people are outside the tent. They are cut off and separated from God. That's not good. We want relationship. But if you were to flip over to Numbers chapter 1, the very next book of the Bible, verse 1, it tells us that the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness in the tent of meeting. Leviticus 1.1, separation. God spoke from out of the tent. Numbers 1.1, God spoke to Moses in the tent. The relationship was restored. People were made right with God. The presence of God and people could now dwell together in harmony. That's wonderful. What happened? The book of Leviticus. So when you do your Bible reading plans, uh, sometimes we, we dread walking through the pages of Leviticus. But you didn't realize that what that book was doing was telling you a wonderful redemption story of how God moved. His presence did not change in the tabernacle, but people were now allowed to enter. So what wonderful thing happens in the book of Leviticus to restore relationship? And we cannot today study all of the book of Leviticus um, because there's food. And so I'm going to reduce us down to the first five chapters, and hopefully that, that captures the heart a little bit of it. But the first clue that we have as you open Leviticus 1 through 5, that things are not as we think them to be, is often when we think of an altar and the animals that were killed on it throughout the Old Testament, the word sacrifice often comes to mind. And that's a good word in Scripture, and we see it all the way through the Old Testament and to Romans chapter 12. There's nothing wrong with that word, but that's not the word God chose to use most often in Leviticus 1 through 5. Instead, he uses the word often translated in your Bible as offering, which comes from the Hebrew word korban. And it usually shows up, depending on your version, as gift or offering. And it comes from the verb of Hebrew that means to draw near or to bring near. To, to bring near something. So Corbin literally means that which is brought near. So you think of a gift as we think about the holidays coming. Part of giving a gift um, is the joy of taking something and handing it to somebody and sharing with them as they express the joy and the wonder at this thing they received. And we love to watch kids open, 
open the gifts in real life. You know, we often, we have to get the parents on the video call to do it because they like to see and, and have that relationship in the presence. And the word God uses here in Leviticus 1 through 5 is indeed this idea of bringing and approaching near. Because God isn't down here writing these rules for killing animals to be a judgmental God who is demanding appeasement of blood. Even the word he uses is communicating the idea that he wants relationship. It's with that in mind that the author of Hebrews chapter 10 says, Since we have a high priest and our hearts sprinkled, let us, it says, draw near. And Ephesians 2 has a similar word. We'll circle back around to that. But already the clue that we have is that God is desiring relationships, so he chooses the word offering. In Leviticus 1 through 5, we're going to detail five different offerings and explain what they are, how you do them, and what the purpose is. And so we're going to walk through that here today. And I'd love sometime if you come down to Jamaica and, and we do a class, I actually have a stuffed animal that we actually you get to do the offerings on. It's really fun. We don't have that today, so we'll just have to talk it through. And I'm going to go quickly, so I encourage you this week, open up Leviticus 1-5 through 5 again and go through these. Check to make sure that everything is correct. But Leviticus chapter 1 starts us off with something called the burnt offering. And the burnt offering is, is there, it's the very first one. It was a very prevalent offering. This was one that was off, to be offered on a regular basis, even uh, twice a day. It was done many, many times throughout Scripture. It's the most common one. And what a person would do is they would bring their animal um, or whatever their offering was to the gate of the tabernacle. They themselves, the person bringing the offering, would have to kill the animal there at the, the tabernacle gate. Now the priest would then take that animal, they would collect the blood, and the altar that was in the courtyard of the tabernacle, or the temple later, the very public big altar, would take the blood from that and pour it on the altar, on the sides of the altar. And then for the burnt offering, they would take the entrails of the animals, everyone know what entrails are? Anyway, and their legs would be washed with water. You say, well, why would they do that? Well, if you're not familiar with livestock, um, I remember one of my best friends in high school worked with sheep. Um, and sheep, cows, many of those types of animals often get diseases by something called the fecal-oral route. See, these are words you didn't expect to hear in church today. Um, and the idea is that contaminations move through the body and are deposited outside of the body, but oftentimes where animals um, are still eating, and so diseases can spread. So by washing the entrails and the legs, there was a symbolic cleansing of external-type contamination so that the sacrifice could then be burned on the altar. It was that, that symbolic idea of washing that general dirt and contamination that comes from that. So it was arranged and it was burnt on the altar, and it says there in Leviticus chapter 1, each time it describes how this is done, that it is a pleasing aroma or a sweet savor. It smells good. How many of you here today or listening online are looking forward to some sweet aromas this week? Anybody? Yeah. You, you, you go to a relative's house or wherever and you open the door and what greets you as the warm air comes out? This wonderful smell of apple pie or pumpkin pie or pecan pie or whatever your preference is. Um, I really shouldn't be talking about this when lunch is coming. But you know the idea of a sweet, pleasing aroma. 
That's what God says the burnt offering was pleasing. He, he enjoys it. He, he accepts it. It's wonderful to him. So that's the burnt offering. Now, Leviticus chapter 2 talks about something called the grain offering, or some versions say meat or meal offering. Now, this one was for crops uh, that were planted and harvested. And the goal, the desire was, you were presenting that which God had blessed you with in the fields, and you were bringing it to him. Now, once again, it was brought to the gate of the tabernacle. It was not killed because it was, you know, a plant. But you couldn't just rip the stalk off the, the plant and bring it to God. You had to actually husk the grain in whatever way. You had to winnow the external um, flack away from it. You then had to mill it and press it, and sometimes you even baked it. So you actually had to put in the work to present something that was prepared and ready for God. And a small portion of it would be burned on the altar there at the tabernacle, but the remainder was for the priests to feed them and provide for them. That was how the, the pastors at the time were provided for, people bringing the grain offering. Now this as well was a pleasing aroma to God. God enjoyed this. It was an act of celebration and worship to God. It was a wonderful thing. So that's Leviticus chapter 2. Now Leviticus chapter 3 describes something called the peace or the fellowship offering. And this one was in many ways like the burnt offering. A person would bring their animal to the gate of the tabernacle. They would kill it themselves and then turn it over to the priests. The priests once again would collect the blood from the animal and pour it around the altar that was in the the courtyard there. Now this time, rather than the entrails and the leg, would remove and burn the fat, the kidney, and the liver, and the parts around that. Now, this is different. And these, the kidney and the liver, you know, remove and filter out contaminants from inside the body. And those are the parts that are burned on the altar. The rest of the animal was to be eaten and used by the people and the priests. This was another way to provide for the well-being of the priests. That's how they got their income, as it were. But by burning the kidney and the liver, God is symbolically removing the internal contamination of this animal so that the people could eat of it. He's removing and he's taking and burning and consuming the inward contaminated part so that the the rest of the part could be consumed and enjoyed by people in fellowship and peace with God. Hence the name peace fellowship offering. This as well is a sweet or pleasing aroma to God. So all three of these offerings were, were there to offer, for people to offer their worship and their honor to God, to acknowledge their place before him, that they are in need of him, they, they are thankful to him, they want to praise him and honor him for the great things he's done. They want to give to the work of God there at the tabernacle, the temple. And so it's wonderful. God loves it. It's a pleasing aroma. It's great. But that's only the first three chapters of Leviticus. Leviticus 4 turns the page. And Leviticus 4 and 5 describe the sin and guilt offering. I'm going to group them into one for us today because they're very, very similar. Now, once again, it starts off pretty similar. The person would bring their offering. 
they'd bring it to the gate of the tabernacle. They themselves would have to kill the animal. But then it changes. Before, the blood was just poured out by the altar. But this time, the priest would take the blood, and he would walk past the altar that was in the courtyard. He would walk past the, the, the labor of washing, of cleansing. He would walk into the entrance of the covered part of the tabernacle, the holy place, where there is a table and a lampstand, a little altar of incense to God, and beyond that is the veil, a piece of cloth that separated people from the presence of God. And there the priest would take the blood that was spilt and sprinkle it seven times before the veil. And then he would take some of the blood by that altar of incense that offered up these aromas to God and put some of the blood on the horn of the altar. And then he would go out and pour the rest of the blood out by the altar. And then once again, they would take the fat, the kidney, and the liver, the, the signs of the inward contamination. And once again, they would arrange and burn those on the altar. And God would remove that contamination. But because this offering was not intended to be a pleasing aroma, this offering was to deal with sin. The Bible then tells us that the head the legs, the skin, the entrails, and even the excrement, all the rest of the, the animal had to be gathered up and taken by somebody, not just outside of the tabernacle door, and they had to walk out of the downtown area where all the fancy tents were for the, for the rulers. They had to walk out to the, the outer tents on the outskirts of the camp, but they couldn't stop there. They had to keep going until they were completely and totally outside of the camp or outside of the city, and there they would burn all the remnants of this sin offering. It had to be removed. It had to be taken out into the wilderness. And these offerings, you will not see the phrase that they are a pleasing aroma to God. The phrase is gone. Because these offerings were not there as willful worship and praise to God. These offerings were there to deal with sin. They were something that was necessary. It, in, in college, when I went to Bible college, there was a chapel near the end of every year where they would give these scholarships and awards to people for different things. You know, the uh, the person who was the best preacher or the, the student. There was all sorts of different awards. And anyone who got the award at, at our college, after you got the award, you got a note from the dean of the college that said, we're really happy you got this award, but you don't actually get it until you write a thank you note. You are required to write a thank you note to get the award. Now, I don't know if the people who sent the, the money for the awards knew that, but a required thank you note loses some of the joy of, the, of that. You know, you give something to a kid, you know, the parents make the kid say thank you. It's not normally flowing out of their heart. But what we really like, we like when someone's appreciative or shows love or reaches out for no reason. That's wonderful. When it's required, it's good, but it doesn't have the same appeal. And the same idea is here, is that these were not a pleasing aroma. 
God didn't wishes that the people didn't have to do this, but it was necessary. I know some uh, pastors have been preaching about suffering for doing good. The Bible says that when you suffer for doing wrong, that's your own problem. And this is a similar idea that this was not a pleasing aroma to God. This was to deal with sin. And just so you realize that the sin, dealing with sin, was not just for the nation of Israel, we find out later in the book of Numbers that it tells us the rules are the same both for you who are an Israelite or for the foreigner and the stranger who live in your land. Numbers 15. What God is saying is that when it comes to dealing with sin... I'm not just writing these rules just for you Israelites. Everybody has the opportunity to deal with their sin problem and approach my presence. See, what is going on is that from these very beginning books of the Bible, God is expressing that his desire is to have relationship with people, and not just a few chosen special people, but with everybody. And it's possible through the sin offering. And so that you realize how important this is, I want to turn your attention to the book of Hebrews. At the end of the book of Hebrews, uh, the author of Hebrews, and I will tell you, Hebrews refers to the Old Testament a lot, but it doesn't tell you it's referring. It's kind of like if you know someone who's really into some movie or TV show and they'll quote it, they're not always going to tell you they're quoting it. They They just love it so much it comes out. So at the end of the book of Hebrews, there is a sentence that if you haven't studied Leviticus, you don't really pay attention to it. But it says this, it says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Stop there. Now that we've looked at the five offerings, now that you read that one single sentence, what offering is that talking about? The sin offering. Now, the original readers of Hebrews, they would have picked up on that. But sometimes we here avoid the book of Leviticus. And so this verse kind of flies by. It's like, yeah, animals sacrificed. I know that happened. I I read it as fast as I could. But what the author is saying is, no, I'm not referring to the burnt offering. I'm not referring to the grain offering or the fellowship offering. I want you guys to have in your mind specifically the sin offering. And now that you have that in your head, the activity of bringing it into the presence of God, or close to, and then removing the body from, the author of Hebrews finishes his book with this idea. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The author of Hebrews is letting us know that the way in which Jesus died was not accidental, It was not done according to the whims and the will of the people at the time. It was arranged by God specifically to capture the idea and the reality of the sin offering. So think through the the final hours of Jesus' life as he is arrested in a garden. He's brought into the temple area to be tried, to be examined. They themselves bring him to this area. And there, when they condemn him, it is they who then beat him and whip him so much that what spills from his body in copious amounts 
his blood in the middle of the city. But because it wasn't right for a person to die, especially not one who was going to be hung on a piece of wood, a tree, Jesus then had to carry this cross as far as he could, and then Simon the Cyrene finished it up. They had to carry that outside the gate of Jerusalem, outside the city, so it's not to be a contaminant for the city of Jerusalem and for the holy place that it was. And it was out there that Jesus breathed his last and he asked Father to forgive them. And why have you turned your face away? Into your hand I commit my spirit. Jesus died outside. His blood was shed in the middle of the city. So unbeknownst to them, the Pharisees who hated Jesus and wanted to remove him from their lives by the very act of beating him and pouring his blood out in the middle of the city and then forcing him outside the city allowed Jesus to perfectly act out and fulfill not the burnt offering, not the grain offering, not the fellowship offering, but the sin offering. Their actions of how they killed Jesus enabled Jesus to perfectly fulfill the sin offering. Their rage, their anger, their hatred of Jesus drove them to do the very action that could redeem them. And the author of Hebrews follows this up by saying, so let us go to him outside the camp. See, the idea is that as the Hebrew author is looking back at the wonderful things Jesus did, He wants to draw the attention not just to the activity that happened in the recent history, but he wants people to open the whole scriptures and say, you know what was going on thousands of years ago when God was talking to Moses? When God gave Moses this seemingly complicated list and rules for different types of offerings, God was not being capricious or malevolent. God was sketching the outline of a, for a model, a picture, a way in which for people to be made right with God. It was just an outline because God knew thousands of years before Jesus would come how Jesus was going to die. And so he outlined this wonderful picture of how sin needed to be dealt with knowing full well that he was going to make his son go through that exact activity to be a retribution and a payment for sin. So what's going on in the book of Leviticus is not these rules and commandments and a burden on people, but God is trying to lovingly open his heart to say, hey, I desire relationship." hey, sin is a problem. Here's how you deal with it. But you know what I'm doing? I'm going to do it real good later on. Someone's going to do this perfectly. And God continued to share this message. And many, many times we overlook it. But if you look in Amos chapter 5, this is just one example. There's actually a number of them out there. But here we have a prophet of God going to God's people who are disobeying and rebelling against him. And God reaches out and says, I despise your feasts. I do not enjoy your solemn assemblies. 
even though you offer, offer me what? Your burnt offerings, your grain offerings, I won't accept them. And the, what? Peace offerings of your fatted calves. What three are those? Those are the sweet savor, the worship ones. What God says is, get away the noise of your songs or the melody of your harps. I want justice and I want righteousness. See, what was happening is this. The gate of the tabernacle or the temple eventually was in the very middle, a prevalent hill or the center of the camp. And you can imagine, you yourself, on a Tuesday morning, your parents or your family members ask you to go take the offering. So you walk up to the gate of the tabernacle, and the priest takes your order. What can I do for you today? I'd like one burnt offering. Outstanding. That's wonderful. Praise God. Take the burnt offering. Or you walk up with the animal, say, what would you like today? I'd like to give a peace offering. Oh, that's great. Thank you for blessing us with your wonderful gift. But now imagine you find out there's sin in your life. So you get in the line of people and you get up to the gate and the priests are all there and the line of people offering their sacrifices. What can I get for you today? I'd like a, I'd like a sin offering. What'd you say? A, a sin offering? Can you speak up? A sin offering. Oh, you want a sin offering. Oh, we can do that. So you don't realize that that had to be a public proclamation. So in the book of Amos, you know what's not listed there? It's the sin offering, suggesting that what people were fine with was bringing the, the burnt offering, bringing the grain and the fellowship offering and saying, God, you're wonderful, you're great, I love how much you do, I'm doing these wonderful things for you. But nobody was showing up with sin offerings and willingly admitting that they had a problem that needed dealt with so they could have a relationship with God. They liked looking good. They liked sounding good. They liked the idea of having a relationship with God, but they were not willing to commit the effort and the humility to deal with the sin in the presence of God so they could be right with God. The perception had overwhelmed the reality of a humble heart. So God says, I don't want it. Bring righteousness and we can talk. And this is woven throughout the scriptures. But we don't pay attention because the offerings kind of glump into this general system. But God was not general. God was specific. So what does these offerings teach us? Well, first of all, they tell us that God desires relationship. From the name, word, offering, to the sweet savor idea, to even the change from Leviticus to Numbers that Moses was rectified. God desires close relationship with you and with me. But sin needs dealt with specifically. It is not something that casually said, oh, I'm going to do better, or I'm sorry, God, I won't do that again. What God wants is specific calling out of sin in our lives. He wants us to deal with it. Sometimes, like these offerings, it might involve public accountability to say, I'm dealing and struggling with this sin, and I desperately need the help of God to fix this so I can have a relationship with God. Sin is not this lighthearted thing we acknowledge, but we don't deal with. The offerings tell us it's serious. 
But then above all of that, and in light of that, the offerings show us that there's this wonderful outline of a picture of the gospel that was painted with the blood of Jesus Christ. So we realize that Genesis chapter 1, God initiated relationship. Genesis chapter 3, man broke the relationship. And every single page of scripture from that point on is a testament and a story or an example of how God is bringing his love down and reaching out and trying to restore relationship. It's great to read John and Matthew and Mark, but we forget that Amos and Leviticus likewise were a sign of God pouring his love out, calling out for people to be restored to relationship with him. They don't paint a picture of an angry, vindictive God. They paint a picture of a God who's willing to experience utter agony, but planning specifically to deal with sin so he could be restored with people. So the very end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 21, he can say, come, let's be together. Don't let the world separate you and divide you from the people around you or let them tell you that the Bible is peace parts and some are good, but you really need to ignore a lot of it. Because every page from Leviticus and all the others are not telling some terrible out-of-date cultural story. They're telling a story of love and determination of God acting to love you and me and make us right with him. That's why Ephesians 2.13, Paul knew the Old Testament, so he said, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been what? Brought near. That's the word Corbin. That's the word offering. Paul knew when he wrote that, the brought near by the blood of Jesus, Jesus did the sin offering so you and I could approach him and draw near. Don't be separated from God. Deal with sin and seek and give worship from a heart that is right with God and desire that relationship. As you gather this week, maybe with family or in the coming weeks, and you enjoy the fellowship and the reunion of love and relationships, let that be a reminder that every page of this book is a reminder and a testament that God loves you. And God wants and has made a way to deal with sin so that you could come to him, be right with him, and enjoy him forever. That's the gospel according to Leviticus. It doesn't stop there. This book's wonderful. Consume it. Study it. And be amazed at the love of God. And then take this to the rest of the world and confidently say, this isn't out of date. This tells you that God loves you. You want to know how much? Let's go to the book of Leviticus. You want to know how much? Let's go to the book of Matthew. It's wonderful to be here with you today. But it'll be better if we can all stand before God someday, say thank you, God, for giving your son to die in a brutally specific way to take care of my sin. We praise you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the testimony and the stories and the examples and the lessons and the commandments, all of which paint a wonderful picture that you love us, and you have made a way to remove sin so we can be in a relationship with you. May we be excited today by every page of this book to go into the world 
and share the hope and the joy and the wonder that is a re restored and relationship with God. May your passion for our hearts drive our passion for the rest of the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.